Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look at the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here, as always, with the wonderful Jeff Simmons. How's it going today, Jeff? It's going very well, Celeste. Just rocking in the free world. Got fuel to burn, got roads to drive. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear all of that. Obviously, lots to talk about today. And as we were just hearing on the uh, news break, certainly all eyes focused right now on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including the takeover of the Chernobyl power plant site. President Joe Biden has said the Russians will be held accountable for this act of aggression. So far, that does not apparently include sending U.S. troops into the region. Uh, meanwhile, domestically, two years to the week of his murder, a Georgia jury found three white men involved in the death of Ahmad Arbery, guilty of a federal hate crime. Uh, the family said that they were satisfied with that verdict, although it would not bring the 25-year-old man back. Uh, this is something a lot of people have been talking about. But what have you been looking at in the news, Jeff? In, in fact, you brought it up. That's what's been uh, – I've been obsessing over it today. As much little free time as I've had, I've tried to turn on the radio or get over to the TV or, or check out online what is going on in Ukraine in Russia, I didn't get a chance to watch it while it was live as the president spoke, but the president did have some incredibly firm words today about sanctions. Uh, you know, very strong wording. British government also is pushing legislation to freeze assets of major Russian banks. A lot going on. This is, I mean, if you think about it, this will be, Celeste, the biggest land war in Europe since the Second World War, which mm -hmm. is just incredible. And, and I think that as much as I might not pay as much attention on a daily basis to world events, this has been reaching this point. This is over the last few weeks, I've been following this more closely every single day and just getting more worried. We think about how, you know, often we think about how things touch our individual lives here. And yeah, they're saying gas prices might go up. But truthfully, I think of the lives that are going to be impacted by this, the many people across the globe who can be affected by this, Celeste. Yeah, this this really seems like, uh, you know, it's something that we haven't seen. And I think this is something that people have been saying, you know, this is the sort of war in Europe that people believed was in the past that was no longer going to be part of our history going ahead. And it, it really is shocking. I don't think this is surprising. Certainly, there's been quite a build up to this. This is something that the United States fully expected uh, to to see. And, you know, obviously, Russia putting out these kind of false flags type of operations type of messaging uh, to say that, uh, you know, that they have justification for this, where, of course, Ukraine till the, the very end, the absolute very end was uh, putting out a message of peace, uh, trying to continue engaging in diplomatic, uh, diplomatic talks with the Russian government and just totally repelled there, totally um, shut down in that regard. The Russians clearly had something in mind, and uh, they were very much bent on on carrying that out. Um, so certainly more to talk about there, and that could be a whole program in itself, certainly. But today we're going to be focusing on something a little bit closer to home. Now, uh, Jeff, you had pointed this out to me. I'm really glad that you did. A uh, new Siena poll out uh, just says that 60 percent, six zero 
percent of New Yorkers say that crime is a very serious problem across the state. Another 31 percent say it's a somewhat serious problem. And nearly a quarter of New Yorkers are very concerned, very concerned about becoming the victim of a crime. So on that note, we're going to be focusing on something that a lot of New Yorkers are concerned about, not in a good way, crime and public safety, specifically on mass transit, specifically in the subways. Now, according to MTA statistics, daily subway ridership in the past few weeks has been roughly between 1.3 and 2.9 million people per day, rides per day, or about between 54 and 73 percent of what it was prior to the pandemic. ABC News says also that so far this year, arrests in transit are up 74 percent and summonses are up 17 percent. Most of them are for fare evasion, smoking, drinking, obstructing seats and public urination. Um, You know, this is something that people have been concerned about as a quality of life issue, as a safety issue. We've certainly seen some very high profile cases. Of course, that terrible, terrible case of a woman being pushed onto the tracks that uh, is basically every New Yorker's worst nightmare. And, you know, for context, it was just about three weeks ago today, as a matter of fact, that President Joe Biden was in the city sitting down with Mayor Eric Adams, Governor Kathy Hochul at NYPD headquarters for a gun violence strategies partnership meeting as the city saw shootings going up along with other crimes over the same period last year, Jeff. And we're going to be hearing a lot more on this in just a moment. But one of the main focuses of the subway safety plan, of course, involves people experiencing homelessness. As part of this plan, police are removing, you may have read about this in the papers in the last week, in fact, police are removing riders off the trains at the end of each run. And as anyone who's ridden the trains know, there are people for whom entrance to the subway system means a place to stay out of of bad weather or to be able to sleep and stay in, for them, relative safety. According to the Coalition for the Homeless in recent years, the uh, population of people experiencing homelessness reached its highest proportion in New York City since the Great Depression. And the population is significantly undercounted, so the exact scope of the problem isn't clear. But in December of 2021, there were more than 48,000 people sleeping in the main shelter system each night. And that includes more or included more than 15,000 kids. I actually went on the Department of Homeless Services website to check their daily report. They put they post figures every day. And that number still is relatively the same 15,000 and 48,000. And think of the three main drivers of homelessness in the city. Uh, You know, what causes homelessness? A lack of affordable housing evictions, which as we're, you know, we're hearing could get worse now that the eviction moratoria federal and state are over and also domestic violence and organizations who work in this field. They say that uh, research showing uh, research shows that individuals who are experiencing homelessness have higher rates of addiction and serious mental illness. So a lot to digest there in this Celeste. Absolutely, Jeff. And so we have to look at this as sort of a a whole issue. People have the right to feel safe and secure when riding the subways. There are people out there who need help uh, in terms of homelessness, mental illness, because that's a really big question. And and we've seen some written about it. And we're going to talk to our next guest about this is where do these people go? What's going to happen to them? How do we balance quality of life and safety for everybody when it comes to our mass transit system? So to talk more about what's going on in the subway 
Airways. We're going to be joined right now by Jose Martinez. Jose is a senior reporter who covers transportation for the nonprofit newsroom TheCity.NYC, uh, which is dedicated to hard-hitting reporter, reporting for New Yorkers. He joined the city in January 2019 after six years as an on-air reporter at New York One, Jeff, your alma mater, where he reported on transportation and he also hosted the weekly In Transit show. He's also a newspaper veteran, which is how I met him, having spent 13 years as a reporter at the Daily News and was also at the New York Post. So, Jose Martinez, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to WBAI. Celeste, Jeff, thank you for having me and always great to speak with you. Absolutely. So we want to jump right in. Obviously, the big news on this is the release of this new subway safety plan, which is supposed to be, I guess, part of the overall uh, crime fighting uh, blueprint laid out by the new mayor, by the governor. But, you know, very specific to mass transit for people who are uh, just getting to know about this, because I believe it just went into effect this week. Tell us a little bit about what that entails, the subway safety plan. It did just go into effect this week on several lines throughout the system where they're going to be focusing in terms of sending more police into the subway system along with social workers, along with medical professionals. The goal, the bottom line here, is to get people out of stations, out of trains, off the benches, and into safer uh, settings, be it shelters, the subway system. But this is something that's been taking shape for some time, uh, particularly during the pandemic, where the subway uh, has, to some degree, become the go-to place for those who are unhoused. Uh, As you said in your opening, uh, Celeste, it's a place where you can go and uh, seek shelter. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with homeless people who say, I'm here because I don't want to be in the shelters. They don't feel safe in the shelters. They'd rather sleep on a bench. They'd rather sleep on a floor in a station. Uh, they'd rather take their chances riding the trains all night, which they can do, of course, ever since uh, 24 hours service was, was restored after that earlier shutdown earlier in the pandemic. But it leads to a lot of problems. It highlights a lot of the issues that are facing the subway system from the tracks to uh, track intrusions, all of this. Uh, has an impact on a subway system that is still at about half of what it was in terms of ridership from prior to the pandemic and whose comeback is really central, uh, whose recovery is really central to the bounce back of New York City. Jose, it's great to have you on. And, you know, what's been going through my mind, and I've not been on the subways this week to see anything, uh, but I'm curious, in these first few days, Are we seeing real changes that now the plan is in effect? You know, there was some news coverage that it has been, I guess, moderate, that it's not been a full force of police and social workers who are going onto the subways. You know, what's happened so far and when do you think we're going to be seeing a a larger difference? It's going to take a while. And that's something that the MTA chairman, Jenna Lieber, uh, spoke about at today's MTA board meeting saying, you know, give this plan some time not something that happens overnight. You're dealing with not only an entrenched population, but one that is very challenging, uh, which is why it's not being responded to simply with a police presence. That would not work. Uh, Instead, you're having the emphasis on mental health, on uh, offering shelter, on creating drop-in centers, on creating new safe haven beds, places where people have options that, that are not uh, in the subway system. But you know, Mayor Adams, uh, 
who oversees, of course, the NYPD, he's been very clear about this. The, the quote that jumped out to a lot of people uh, from his most recent announcement uh, at Fulton Center with Governor Hochul was no more smoking, no more doing drugs, no more sleeping, no more doing barbecues on the subway system, no more just doing whatever you want. So that, if that sounds like law and order, it, it, it's probably right. Uh, Adams, of course, is a former uh, police officer. Uh, he never fails to mention that he served in the Transit Bureau uh, or in the NYPD tra- Transit uh, Police back when there, there was a specific Transit Police. So uh, it's, it's an issue for the MTA. It's an issue for the city. It's an issue for the economy. And clearly it's one that has to have a lot of focus in these days as, as we try and bounce back from a pretty rough two years. Jose Martinez is a senior transportation reporter for the city.nyc, a new nonprofit newsroom. And Jose, I want to go back to, uh, you mentioned the MTA chairman, Jeno Lieber. And in a story in late January, you quoted him as saying that riders are feeling vulnerable from, quote, all too frequent interactions with New Yorkers struggling with mental health issues. But at the same time, you've also written about how the MTA is relying more on police to address these kinds of mass transit issues than other cities. So tell us a little bit about your reporting there. Well, the the mental health crisis is one that plays out in perceptions of the public uh, in terms of of how they feel in the subway system. So you mentioned at the top those surveys, and, you know, that, that points also to the MTA's own work on this front. There's a perception of safety, and or a lack of safety, I should say. And what the MTA has long been saying is we want more police, we want more police, and then saying and put those police in places where riders can feel more at ease. So not just minding the turnstile up on the mezzanine level of the station, but putting them down on the platform, putting them down at track level so that it can put riders more at ease. There, there really is uh, the perception that uh, comes with seeing a uniform presence in the system. Uh, and, I, and I ride the system pretty much every day. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, it's, it's a tricky spot for police. A lot of them aren't quite prepared for uh, exactly what they're going to be facing. Uh, but that's, also why at, at a lot of these places are going to be working in tandem uh, with mental health professionals and those who are uh, better equipped to deal with the mentally ill or those who are without shelter to, to try and get them out of this um, plight that they are in. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and myself, Jeff Simmons. We're talking about subway safety with Jose Martinez, senior transportation reporter for the city.nyc. Jose, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the hearing today with Jana Libra, and we've been fortunate here, Celeste and I, to have him on Driving Forces uh, a few months ago. Uh, and I think we should have him back sometime to talk about his first few months in office and, and uh, all these issues that he's encountering. Um, I'd love to know about, and this is not specific to this issue, but a little more broadly, 
uh, about uh, when it comes to safety on the subways. There was the big announcement in the last, what, 24 hours. They're going to be installing platform barriers in several stations, but they were resistant to do this at first. Where do we stand on that? What do you know about this that you can share with our listeners? Because when they start going at some point, to, you know, to take mass transit, they will be seeing these barriers on several stations in the near future. Well, there, are, there are 472 stations throughout the New York City uh, transit system. Uh, the MTA did a study some years back that found just about a quarter of the stations could have platform doors installed at them. So that's 128 of 472 stations. But it's not like you snap your fingers, Jeff, and they're off. Uh, this is a 100 plus year old subway system. Uh, retrofitting is expensive and timely. And that study that the MTA did found that retrofitting those 128 stations could run about $7 billion. So what the MTA has done in the last day or so is do an about face on what the agency has for years and years resisted. And that is installing barriers at some stations. So what we're going to eventually see by 2024 for the cost of about $100 million is platform barriers of some sort coming to the Times Square platform on the number seven line, the third avenue on the L, and to the uh, Sutphin Archer stop on the E out in Queens. That's where you connect to the air train, which, of course, happens to already have uh, platform barriers. So platform barriers are around in the many newer systems and in older systems that have uh, made extensions to their, to their legacy systems. Uh, but New York, of course, is the oldest, one of the oldest systems in the world. And, and the MTA has for years said that the cost made uh, these sorts of barriers prohibitive, uh, that it would be too much work, uh, that it could interfere with the airflow, uh, that New York has special circumstances, on and on and on and on. But uh, I've been covering the transportation beat for about a decade now, and I can tell you that this is one of those, we, we call it an evergreen story, because any time uh, a person pushes, it's pushed onto the tracks, uh, or you have some horrible episode on the tracks, uh, it, it comes back again. You know, like, why doesn't New York have platform doors? It's a good question. Uh, as Jana Lieber would say, it's a fair question. Uh, but... Um, it's expensive and it's been prohibitive to date. There are a lot of issues associated with it. But eventually, you know, now by 2024, they say, we're going to at least get them tested in three spots. Uh, in tandem with this, the MTA wants to test out, uh, continue testing, I should say, uh, some technologies that detect when people or objects of a certain size fall onto the tracks so that the rail control center and train crews can be alerted to the presence. Um uh, they want to do programs studying why people find themselves on the, on the tracks. Uh, this is a very, very serious problem. Uh, we wrote in the city last month uh, about how track intrusion had been going up uh, and, and, and the MTA saying today that uh, it's up about 20% between 2021 and, and two years prior to that. And that as a result, you've had 68 deaths uh, resulting from someone finding their way onto the track. So it's, it's, it's the worst possible place to be. Uh, you don't want to be on the tracks unless you absolutely have to be. And, and by that, I mean, those are the people who are required to be there. But 
uh, people certainly shouldn't be living there. And the MTA said today that they found, uh, I believe it was 28 uh, homeless encampments in tunnels. So, again, that's that's an issue. And that that's that's a, a really deep problem that's going to require um, one heck of an effort to get people out of what is not a humane situation. Wow. You know, I was going to ask another question, Jose. I know we're going to run out of time soon, and Celeste will go next, but I'm just going to say that astounded me what you just said about the encampments in the subways. I mean, I know we've seen these things in movies and in some TV shows, you see it, but then you get hit with the reality when you hear it at a meeting such as the one you attended where the MTA is saying that they found 20, I think you said 20 encampments in subway stations. It's just incredible. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, I was I was talking with a former board member yesterday who was saying, uh, telling me how police t- took him on a, a guided tour, if you will, of the area to show these encampments. So this has been a long-running problem, um, and it's one that they have to be very serious about correcting because uh, you do not you do not want that. And uh, I, I remember writing a story, I, I believe it was last fall or in the fall of 2020. Uh, about how incidents of people on, on, on the tracks were going up and up and up and some of the terrible things that were happening as a result. And that hasn't changed. Uh, it's, it's become uh, quite the topic of interest. And it's, it's serious as a heart attack. You do not want this uh, in your transit system. And Jose, I know we have uh, only a few more moments here, but I want to ask you sort of a big picture question, since, as you said, you've been covering transportation for about a decade uh, and you've seen this sort of on the on the, you know, larger horizon. We've seen subway ridership somewhat bouncing back, I guess, since the real true depths of the pandemic. But between what's going on with the crime and safety issue, with the need to, uh, you know, to update the system, uh, with some of the, you know, the other issues that are going on, do you feel like mass transit in the city is fundamentally changed? Will it ever get back to where it was? Should we expect that? Uh, or are we looking at something completely different going ahead? It's a steep climb. It is a steep climb. At the depth of the pandemic, ridership in the subway fell by more than 95%. The, the decline was not as pronounced on the buses. Surface transit um, held on to more of its ridership. Now we've had uh, three days in a row earlier this month where ridership topped 3 million. The MTA saying today that they want to keep climbing, but that they're at that level now where they were right before Omicron. So it's, it, it, it took a dip again from that latest uh, round of the pandemic with the Omicron variant. But the goal is to keep climbing. But I'll tell you what, Celeste, I think about this every single day when I go for my morning walk in Central Park. And I see a lot of people um, who aren't taking transit, who are walking to work. Uh, okay, so they work in Midtown and maybe it's a close walk. But, you know, that's lost revenue for the MTA those are people who perhaps have lost faith in the transit system. And the MTA, as I said before, has a, a very steep hill to climb when it comes to regaining the trust for whatever reason, be it the concern of a crime, be it you've shifted into new patterns, be it that you're working from home. But it's going to take a while to get back to where we were just a few years ago where we had close to 6 million daily riders on weekdays in the subway. 
Absolutely. And it's so tied into the rebound of commercial areas, uh, business areas in the city. If people are working remotely or at least part time remote, what is going to happen to those office spaces? What is going to happen to the people who are commuting into the city via Metro North, Long Island Railroad and are maybe either uh, parlaying that into working from home at least part time or uh, joining the big uh, the big resignation or whatever it's called and you know just getting out of their jobs and finding something different where they can shape their own uh, their own work life and their own work life yeah, balance for sure it's, it's a yeah. big big question and it's a huge issue for the MTA so, Jose Martinez, if we want to cover, uh, find out more about you and follow your coverage of what is going to happen to the MTA, uh, where do we look? I, I would encourage uh, your listeners to check out thecity.nyc. We're about three years in to uh, this newsroom, and it's been uh, the, the high point of my career, really. I've been a reporter almost 30 years, and I've never had bigger challenges or more fun than in the last three years at the city uh, for as serious as, as the reporting is the the work we've done has been really satisfying and, and hopefully we're a benefit to new yorkers we're at the city.nyc and on twitter i'm at at j martinez nyc j martinez nyc Absolutely. Well, we will keep an eye out and we hope that you will come back and pipe in again on all these important issues, particularly on transit, but on the uh, the the life and times of New York City. Jose Martinez of the city, a pleasure to have you here on Driving Forces today. Thank you both. Always a pleasure. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined as always by my wonderful and amazing host, Celeste Katz-Marston. We were just speaking with Jose Martinez of the city. Uh, really good to de- definitely check out his reporting. And Celeste, he really knows his stuff. He just rattled off those stats, and I'm sure he didn't have a piece of paper in front of him. I would have had to have had it to remember the number of stations, mm-hmm. everything. But yeah. one thing I, I do want to bring up about the uh, – about the uh, the platform doors they're talking about, because I start to think of all the reasons people will say, no, 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 we can't do this. You know, it's interesting about the about face that has happened with the MTA, but there are going to be significant things. I mean, think about things that maybe you or I might not necessarily experience in our lives when we're taking the subways, but people who might be in a wheelchair, how is this going to impact them? What about the pillars for instance, on many subway platforms, how right. do you work around them? So many issues that are going to have to be dealt with. So just piloting this in a few stations, uh, you know, might be, might be the way that we learn from this experience, Celeste. Absolutely. And I think, I, I think this is something that we need to keep talking about. And I'm really glad we can do it here on driving forces. So before Jeff introduces our next guest, just want to take one minute, of course, to remind you that we can only stay on the air here with your help. We are listener supported, commercial free, non-corporate WBAI. Please go to WBAI.org today and look for ways to donate. Your donation of $25 or more makes you a member of this station. That means you can participate in important votes that determine the future of independent free speech radio in the greatest city in the world. And do not forget... Do not forget that timing's coming up again. Your gift is tax deductible. So give yourself a tax break, help a great cause and a great service. This radio station today, please go to WBAI.org. Click ways to donate support radio today. 
And while you can't see me, uh, to our listeners, Celeste can on FaceTime right now. I'm smiling when she mentions tax deductible because I was very happy as I finished my taxes this past weekend and was very happy about, I know I'm bragging a little there, but I was glad (laughs) to get it done. But, uh, you know, but that's not the reason I give, but that is a benefit that these gifts that I'm giving to stations like WBAI or news outlets, you know, that I've, I've given to as well that are nonprofit outlets that I feel like I'm doing good to help them. But yeah, there is that benefit of this being tax deductible. Just to remind you, again, you can go to WBAI.org and make a contribution. Again, you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI. I'm Jeff Simmons here with my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And today we're talking about the subway safety plan that was just initiated by the city. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, some of that plan focuses on people inside mass transit centers who are experiencing homelessness or are mentally ill or possibly both. How can the city address the needs of regular commuters as we slog our way back from the pandemic, but also care for the most vulnerable people in our city? To talk more about this, we're now going to be joined by Philip Llanos, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at John Jay School of Criminal Justice within the CUNY system. He conducts research on mental health stigma, and he's the author of the book, Written Off Mental Health Stigma and the Loss of Human Potential. He's got over 25 years of clinical experience working with people diagnosed with serious mental illness, and he currently works on an assertive community treatment team in East Harlem. Professor Janos also was born and raised in New York, grew up on the grounds of Manhattan Psychiatric Center on Wards Island. Philip Janos, thanks for joining us here on Driving Forces today. Hi, thanks for having me. So to begin with, what is your overall sense of the subway safety plan? Do you think it's going to succeed or fail, and in in what ways? Um, it depends on what we consider to be a desirable outcome. So if the only desired outcome uh, is to remove people from the subway whose presence the public finds upsetting or concerning, then it probably will be successful. But if the goal is to help those people who are being removed, then I don't have a lot of confidence that it'll do much good, and I'm also concerned that it will instead uh, do harm. Um, so my main problem with it is where is the housing? Um, if people are living in the subway system, who are living in the subway system are escorted out of it to a shelter or some other kind of service site, but not offered anything tangible that's going to help them in the long term, uh, they're just going to return to the subway or they're going to go to the street if they get tired of being escorted out of the uh, subway system by the response teams. So how, how are they being helped? Um, the other concern I have is that there's potential for harm whenever uh, in, the police interact with people. Um, so uh, if someone's not pleased with being moved out, uh, they might get into a conflict with the police, and sometimes police use force. And this can lead to um, uh, harmful outcomes, you know, such as in the case of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York in, in 2020. And, uh, Professor, for people who may not be familiar with that case, can you just share a little bit about what that entailed? Well, um, he was distressed, uh, and uh, one of his, um, uh, I think his brother, called the police to try to have him escorted to the hospital. And he wasn't a danger, um, but he was acting erratically. He was uh, nude. Uh, The police put a spit hood over his face, and he died by asphyxiation through that. 
So, Professor Yanos, obviously this is not something that the average person uh, wants to see happen to anybody, mm-hmm. does not want to, you know, be, uh, you know, be, be a witness to, to that kind of, uh, that kind of incident. But, uh, the fact is that there are people, and, uh, you know, in the city that, that are genuinely fearful for their safety. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, to some extent we see this, uh, you know, played up quite a bit in some, uh, some media accounts, but genuinely there are people who are frightened for their, physical well-being, afraid of being pushed off a platform, afraid of being assaulted. You know, where where is sort of the balance for how do we take care of people, but also make sure that regular riders who are just on their way to work or kids going to school are going to be safe on mass transit? Well, I think that the solution is to provide housing to people so that they're not don't feel compelled to stay um, on mass transit. Uh, the reason why um, some individuals who are homeless uh, sleep on the subways or on the street, um, and it's a small proportion, but it's still, uh, you know, the most visible group, um, is because they don't feel safe in the shelter system. And so um, providing um, supported housing for individuals, uh, you know, meeting that need uh, rapidly um, is essential, um, and that's what we're not seeing in this plan. And and just to follow up, the uh, the new safety teams that are going out, uh, there have been a lot of concerns about uh, just asking police to sort of deal with this problem. And, and as you said, that can mean just getting that problem out of public sight or that person out of public mm-hmm. sight, but not really addressing the, the root causes. Do you think it matters at all that the uh the cur- the new plan calls for sending police out with mental health workers or people who are able to provide some sort of assistance specific to homeless or to uh to other issues it helps that there are mental health workers present but that doesn't take away um the possible um conflict that could occur just from the presence of police um who are armed of course and um you know, recently the the dialogue on how crisis crisis response should occur has moved away from uh, the idea that police should just be better trained to the idea that um, the first line of response should be uh, non-police. So um, this is something that um, you know I was involved in advocating for last year, and um, Currently, there's a pilot program for response uh, in uh, in East Harlem neighborhood of Manhattan where um, non-police crisis teams are responding. But in the rest of the city, uh, anytime 911 is called um, related to mental health issues, the police automatically show up. So uh, we're, we're learning about how well this is working here so far. It seems to be going well, but um, this is different than responding with police only. We're speaking to Professor Philip Yanos of John Jay College of Criminal Justice here on Driving Forces, WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. Professor Yanos, stay on that for a minute. Tell us more about what that program looks like, how it differs, obviously, from what people might think of as a sort of prototypical you know, confrontational situation between police and, and somebody who needs assistance, but also maybe, uh, you know, causing some consternation or, or upset uh, with other people around them. What does this program do differently? Right. So what I want to um, clarify is that the police are, of course, warranted uh, when a crime is being committed or is in process. And sure. no one is suggesting that uh, if someone has um, a mental health history that 
police should not um, respond if they're committing a crime. But the vast majority of interactions between police and people with mental illnesses are not related to a crime, but something is called, uh, rather something is called a wellness check, right? So wellness checks are sometimes self-initiated and sometimes initiated by concerned family or neighbors. And so, for example, in the case of uh, Deborah Danner a few years ago, uh, she was killed by police in her home after a neighbor called 911, and the neighbor was concerned about her well-being. Um, so... Um, in, in the pilot program that's currently operating in Manhattan, um, the uh, teams show up. Um, there are no police involved. Um, they can always call the police for backup, though, if they think that um, they're needed. Um, and so an example of how this works is um, in the program that's been operating in Eugene, Oregon, for the past 32 years. It's called the CAHOOTS program. And they have extensive data from their 32 years of implementation and it's interesting to note that uh, police are only called for backup in 1% of the cases that they've responded to all over these years. So in 99% of the cases, police don't need to be brought in. But, of course, it's possible that they do, and, and that's something that they have the option of doing. Professor, you know, as I'm listening to you speak, you know, my mind keeps going to something that one of the nonprofits I work with has talked about, which is, in investing in prevention, we need to focus more on investing in preventative measures that will then, you know, prevent people from having to live on the streets or, uh, you know, or to live on the subways. And, you know, and we're speaking about, you know, I'm reflecting on something that Jose Martinez had said about every time there's an incident, people talk about different uh, measures we can implement in the subway system, but it often feels like people who are experiencing homelessness are scapegoated. And, uh, and you know, when the mayor reacts in such a way about putting more police, you know, uh, paired now with social workers on, on the subway system, that it is the, those people who are experiencing homelessness who are becoming the scapegoats. I'm just curious, you know, I've, there's a lot that I'm trying to unpack here. Sorry. But, mm -hmm. uh, but do you think that we lose sight of the fact when we react to these things and focus on, well, what can we do now? We lose sight of the fact that maybe if we invested more in prevention to begin with, we would not have gotten to this point. Yes, absolutely. And the, the prevent, the main prevention approach, um, and it's not even preventative, it's, it's reactive, but it's, it's one that, that, um, Re vastly reduces the need um, is to use uh, the housing first model, which is an approach to uh, providing people with uh, rapid access to uh, independent housing along with off-site services such as a, a sort of need treatment, which is the type of uh, treatment system that I work in. Um, and uh, we have uh, tremendous evidence for the effectiveness of the housing first model. Uh, it was actually born here in New York City, but um, it's really not implemented here any longer. Um, just, to, just to give you an example of the, the uh, range of the evidence for it, so Canada had a, a very large-scale study um, in the past few years uh, called the At-Home Chez Soi study. Uh, they randomly assigned 2,000 uh, homeless individuals with mental health and substance use issues uh, to housing first or to treatment as usual, and over a two-year period, People assigned to housing first had faster housing uh, uptake, longer housing retention, better quality of life and community participation, and less ER and hospital use, which meant that it was less costly for society. And just the magnitude of the difference is, is quite substantial. So within six, six months, 75% of the housing first group was housed, and only 30% of the, 
of the treatment as usual group was housed. And this was persisted to 24 months, at which point it was a similar percentage of the housing first group and less than 50% of the treatment as usual group was housed. So currently what we're doing is more akin to this treatment as usual uh, approach in New York City, and that's why uh, people are staying in the shelter system, they're staying on the street, they're not moving into permanent housing, which is a vehicle for engaging them in services, right? If you don't engage someone in, in, in something stable like housing, they're not going to engage in the mental health services that we want them to engage in. And Professor Yannis, in just the uh, the moment that we have left here, did want to ask you about something that I see that you've written, spoken about, which is putting this idea of subway crime, crime in general, into greater context. I believe you've talked about, you know, what are the odds of becoming the victim of a subway crime or a mass transit crime versus something else like getting struck by a car? You've talked about this. Just kind of give us some perspective on this because people genuinely, again, are genuinely concerned about their safety uh, in, in the mass transit system. Well, I, I don't want to minimize that that concern. Right. I mean, I, right. I, I'm a New Yorker. I ride the subway every day. I've ridden the subway, you know, since I was a child. And this is always something that people are concerned about. But um, it is something that's sensationalized and, and it's really focused on, whereas, um, you know, those other kinds of events do occur daily uh, pretty much, and, and they aren't looked at in a way that demonizes the actor, right? So um, we focus on this. We, we focus on who's doing it and, and demonizing them and demonizing the, the class that they belong to, in this case, this assumption of it being something that's due to mental illness. Uh, that doesn't seem to be attributed to drivers who drive recklessly, perhaps, and uh, all drivers are not are not blamed in the same kind of way. Right. That that makes sense. Uh, Philip Yanos is the author of Written Off, Mental Health Stigma and the Loss of Human Potential and is a professor of clinical psychology, excuse me, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Philip Yanos, thank you so much for joining us here today on Driving Forces. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. We just spoke with Philip Yanos of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Earlier in the program, we spoke with Jose Martinez, who covers transportation for the nonprofit newsroom, thecity.nyc. And today's subject, of course, safety in the subways and the new subway safety plan. So coming up, we are going to give you your chance to weigh in. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. What do you think of the subway safety plan? How safe do you feel on the trains? Have you changed anything about how you use mass transit because of crime? Do you think that this plan is going to help at all? Or have you seen this movie before that didn't go anywhere? So we really want to hear from you on this very important topic. Please call in. 212-209-2877. We're going to take a quick break. And while we wait for the board to light up, you can always go to WBAI.org and give to support this station. We are going to go to our break right now. We will be right back.
and the Doobie Brothers here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live by WBAI.org. Long train running. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz. Marston here with Jeff Simmons. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. Do you feel safe on the trains? Do you think this subway safety plan is going to work? Are you concerned about how it's going to affect the homeless, mentally ill people who are taking shelter in the public transit system? 212-209-2877. Here at WBAI, we are all for debate, but we are also all for keeping it civil. So let's be respectful. And with that, we're going to go to the phones. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello? Hi. Yeah, hi. Hi. Good evening uh, to the beloved community. I have some thoughts on the discussion First of all, you were talking about a study in in Canada. I don't know how they did that study in terms of uh, the so-called homeless because I lived for a significant time in three different parts of Canada, uh, Montreal, um, Ottawa, and uh, Hamilton, which is sort of like an exurb of, um, of Toronto. Not once did I see a homeless person on the street, okay? They take care of their their people the same way that as the pandemic hit, they made sure people could pay their bills and their rent. And uh, I just heard that the U.K. is just stopping the, uh, you know, uh, subsidies that they gave to low-income people, and people could stay home if they were sick as opposed to, uh, making a, a bad situation worse during the pandemic. So uh, the other thought that I had is, I, I tell you, it was painful to see what Eric Adams is doing these days. And then for Biden to come to town talking, I mean, it's like Biden is almost like a robot. You know, he just can't see what people are saying about police only the only mantra that he has in mind is to say oh i want to add more money to the police he doesn't understand or he won't look at safe communities when you're in a safe community you're housed you're educated you have recreational after school centers and 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 tutoring so, uh, and let me just lastly bring up Deborah Dana uh, mm-hmm. in the Bronx. I believe she was in Co-op City. I mean, how ridiculous and deadly does it get when you have a, a, a petite, uh, and I think she was middle-aged or older woman that the police claim had a baseball bat. And they didn't know to back away. So uh, this Portland, Oregon program, they've had successes. And what's so unfortunate is that we can never move toward doing what would be the sensible and the positive. I mean, for Eric Adams, who had brought Biden in, saying that same answer, well, I think we should... Uh, not to fund the police, but add more money to the police. That mm-hmm. is beyond ridiculous. And, and, and that's you're raising, my comment. 
And you're raising some good uh, concerns. Think about when he visited Albany and uh, had a lot of resistance on the state level to some of his measures. We want to thank you so much. I believe you are a regular caller here. So thank you so much for listening to WBAI's Driving Forces each week and for listening to the topics and weighing in on them. It's very important. We enjoy hearing from you each week. Thank you so much. I believe we have another caller on the line. Let's get to that call. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Jim from Brooklyn. Hi, Jim. What's um, on your mind today? Okay. I have not changed basically my riding habits at all. I ride the subways and the buses. Um, but uh, because of the danger, I, I, I carry a walking stick that's actually extended out longer than a walking stick. And because I have been confronted almost invariably, sometimes two or three times in one trip, either on the platform the train by people who are looking at me in a what you would call predatory or casing out manner. And what I have done, and I am prepared to do this, I am prepared to thrust with the end of the cane forcefully into the neck or the chin of somebody who approaches me in, in a dangerous way. All I have done is pick up this, this stick and, and lay it out horizontally at them, and they, they turn away and go somewhere else. And, and I have, if I have not had that, it would have been much worse. I think a lot of people share that. And a lot of people are doing other. I know somebody who carries a lethal knife in a, in a priority mail box to mail it, and he has an insurance tag on it, and he mails it to address to his brother-in-law, and he, he only uses it as a cover to carry a knife around. I have seen people with golf clubs. I have seen people with long mailing tubes that obviously had something in them. And this is what people are not going to sit still, especially in the fact that the Sullivan law where people are not even allowed to arm themselves properly. And the police, even if there are a thousand police, how, how, we don't know if they're going to show up on time. So I'm telling you, everybody, be prepared. Arm yourself in some way that you can get away with carrying something. And, and, and believe me, it works. It works. So Jim, Most of those people turn chicken as soon as they see a threat. They're looking Jim, for how- easy prey. I'm just curious to know, since you you know you said you haven't changed your your habits in riding the trains. How long have you lived in the city? How long have you been using mass transit in New York? How long is what? How long have you I been was, living in born, the city and using mass transit here, in the city? I was born here in 1947. I moved back in '71. I've been living here since then. I always ride trans, public transportation. And I was just curious. Do you think it's worse now than ever? Or do you remember? Because I mean, I certainly remember going back to like, uh, you know, when I was growing up. So this is this is I'm going to blow up my age here. But if you think about what the city was like, what the trains were like in say like the 70s, 80s, um, yeah. you know, how would you I compare that to to now? It's, it's, in the past few months, it's much, much, much worse. As I said, I could go onto a platform and take a train ride. I I have I have had this. This predatory uh, casing out stare at me within sometimes within ten minutes by three different people, and sometimes once a day. But it's much more prevalent, and 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 it only and it also happens just walk, walking on the streets in Midtown. And wow. and as I said, these mm-hmm. people they change they change their tune immediately when they see a long stick pointed at their neck, and and it works. I don't want to use it. God forbid I should have to use it, but I do carry it, and that's the way it is. Okay, thanks, Jim, for your call. Uh, certainly a, an interesting perspective there. I wonder if there are other people who are feeling this way, if they are feeling so uncomfortable or so threatened that they are, uh, you know, taking some sort of self-defense action or measure. I think we have time for one more call. We're going to make it a little bit brief, but WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Hello? That's you. Yes, how you doing? My name is Tommy. I'm a city worker for New York City. 
and I've been here all my life. And I have um, two things real brief. The, the, sure. the, the, statement. the lady who just called before the guy just now, mm-hmm. she has a point. Um, she is She's right on the money. And the guy who just called just now, that's what people are doing. People is like, it's like death wish with Charles Bronson. It's like that out here now in New York City. It got down to death wish. You know, people taking it in their own hands. And it's becoming like 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 a Bernard Getz situation. You know what I'm saying? That's how it is. New York City is, is becoming. Um, I have an idea about the homeless. I think that they should put individual jails in every borough and make Rikers Island into a mental institution and for the homeless. And you want people off the streets, you grab them, put them on a bus, ship them across that bridge, they can go over there and get help, shelter, and you, are, and you have people off the subways, off the, um, <clears throat> off the streets. If you want to remove the, um, the homeless, I think that's the best way. They're going to take Rikers Island out. They should put. They should. They should redo Rikers Island and turn it to a mental and homeless facility. You know, so you could. You know, people won't have maybe even no engagement because the thing about it is, is safety. You know, um, you want people off the streets. Take them over there. They get help. They get you know social things done. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's. That'd be great to turn Rikers Island into a mental place or a homeless shelter. It's it's that big. The well, that's a, that's a, big enough for that. Then we hear and and I wish I wish we had more time to to talk about that, Tommy. Thank you for your call. There's a there's a lot going on there. I I think that certainly most people, if not all people, would agree that more could be done and should be done to assist people who are experiencing homelessness or mental illness in the city. I'm not entirely sure that uh, there is a lot of runway for remaking Rikers Island specifically into that uh, that kind of facility, but uh, certainly something we could talk about in a future program. We're coming right up against it, Jeff. Real quick, what do you have for City Watch going on this Sunday? And for our listeners, let me apologize. Last week I said coming up this Sunday, it was uh, we were off last Sunday. So this Sunday, you want to tune into City Watch at 10 a.m. David Brand is hosting. He's going to have two new city council members, Julie Wan of Sunside Long uh, Sunnyside and Long Island City, one of the first two Korean Americans elected to the council. Then he talks with Bronx Council member Pierina Ana Sanchez, chair of the Buildings Committee and a former official in the Obama White House. Thanks to our special guest today, Jose Martinez, senior reporter for The City, New York, and to Professor Philip Llanos of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thanks, as always, to you, our listeners and our callers, and to our engineer, Reggie Johnson. One more reminder that your contribution to keep free speech radio alive here on WBAI's tax deductible. Please go to WBAI.org today to support this station, WBAI.org. If you missed any part of the show, you can hear it in full by subscribing to Driving Forces via Apple SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with your hosts, Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. Now stay tuned to WBAI for the evening news. Thanks for listening and see you on the radio.